Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. Thanks entirely to listeners like you who generously support the show on Patreon. Indoctrination has been going for over five years now, releasing a new episode every week, plus new bonus episodes for Patreon supporters twice a month. In those almost six years since we started back in 2018, a community of like-minded shows has grown around us. We are so grateful to see the numerous other podcasters doing really great work in the cult education and recovery space. Whenever we take notice of these shows, I like to reach out and collaborate, which as some of you know, has led to several crossover episodes with shows like The Influence Continuum with Steve Hassan, A Little Bit Culty with Sarah and Nippy, as well as one we'd like to highlight today, Mind Shift with Dr. Clint Haycock. If you have not already done so, please make sure to check out our last crossover episode with Dr. Haycock, who will be joining us again in just a few weeks to discuss topics around his expertise in Christian fundamentalism. Clint is a former pastor and Bible college teacher with a sharp analytical mind and deep theological knowledge, which he displays on MindShift. Here's Dr. Haycock now to describe the show in his own words. I was raised in a cult. Of course, if you'd have asked me all those years ago or anyone else in our small fundamentalist church if we were a cult, we'd have indignantly replied, absolutely not. Other groups like the Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, they're cults, but we're not a cult. Everything became normalized, though, but it wasn't until decades later, after I deconstructed my entire belief system and walked away from the Christian faith entirely, that I began to see just how cultish the whole thing actually was. But before all of that, for over 20 years, I'd served both as a pastor and a Bible college teacher, so I had a hand in it, furthering the toxicity also. So in the process of rebuilding my life and discovering my authentic identity, I've got lots to work through, things like religious trauma syndrome, rapture anxiety, and just so much more. Join me, Dr. Clint Haycock, on the MindShift podcast as we take a look at such topics as cult tactics and psychology, religious trauma syndrome and religious addiction, taking your life back after leaving a cult or high-control group, and finally, dominion theology and the dangers posed by the Christian right, not just in America, but indeed the world. You can find my show on iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Who knows, it might just be time for a mind check. And so for today, we have a special guest, Tia Levings. She grew up in a Southern Baptist megachurch and was recruited into fundamentalism by mentors following IBLP, the Institute of Basic Life Principles and eventually landed in a high-control group that taught federalist marriage, the idea that husbands are responsible for their wives before God and so are accountable to lead and discipline them as children. Yes, you heard that right. She was excommunicated and formally shunned in 2007 and narrowly escaped that violent marriage with her four children later that year. She started trauma therapy for CPTSD, which is Complex Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder, in 2008. Today, she's an author and advocate who supports survivors of religious trauma and educates them on the abuses of Christian fundamentalism. 
Tia believes that how the fundamentalists run their homes is how they want to run the country, and that's why it's vital to understand what it's really like to live that way. You can actually see Tia in the recent documentary, Shiny Happy People, about the Duggar family. It's called Shiny Happy People, Duggar Family Secrets, and it's available now on Amazon. And you can find out more about Tia and her work at tialevings.com. Here's Tia now. I'm so happy to have Tia Lovings with me today. It is really good to speak with you. I know you've had a chance to be out there and talking and writing and doing a lot of things to get your story out. And so I want to welcome you to the show and have you spend a couple moments introducing yourself. Yes, thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. I have a story, a big story to tell. I it discovered it in therapy, actually. I was in trauma therapy and my I was journaling it. And my therapist was like, you should write this. That was about 10 years ago. Um, and it went through several iterations, 13 drafts, lots of journeying in the writing process. And it's coming out in August of 24. Yeah, I started talking about it online about two years ago. Exploded. Platform is large as a result. And this is um, very highly relevant information for our headlines and our culture today because the group that I'm from has infiltrated every part of our our lifestyle in America and they don't always understand why. Sometimes they're, they they feel it and they feel this dissonance and this division that we have and they don't understand how strategic that it was. And my background encapsulates a big cultural shift that we had over the past 50 years in America. So a well-trained wife is that story and that's what I'm here to talk about today. Wonderful. So if you can, before we get into more of your story, when you were talking about it infiltrating, you know, one of the podcast episodes that people will have heard by the time they hear this was a conversation I had with Chris Shelton, who is a former Scientologist, and he and I were talking about how they have infiltrated, how they have paid off a lot of different people in positions of authority and police force people who they use kind of for protexia. The same thing happened with the Unification Church, with the Moonies, you know, with having George Bush speaking at their events, you know, just it's quite incredible how people don't see it for what it is. And and sometimes even if they do see what the group for what it is, they're still somehow okay with offering it protection or offering it power and for people to look the other way, for them to have certain rights that they might not have had otherwise and security in a lot of ways that they might not have had otherwise. So what can you tell me about this group and what you've seen that it does, how it infiltrates and where it infiltrates? It's kind of like, uh, if you want a visual, like ripples on a pond or the circles of a bullseye or nesting dolls, Russian nesting dolls, it's so much more comprehensive than a single group. And that's one of the problems of focusing like on one congregation or one organization Evangelicism in America is massive. It's our, it's a, most of our Protestant faith. And in the past 40, 50 years, they had no problems co-opting other denominations such as um, Catholicism to unify under a common cause like abortion. So when you end up with a voting block that's that massive, 
and so much a part of people's family traditions and the fabric of their lives. It's very hard to call it a cult, you know, and the, the, does it fit the bike criteria? And the infiltration is both strategic at the government level and in the finances. And like, there's all these little exposés that can point those fingers. Then there's also just this cultural, but this is part of my family, but this is the way we talk. This is the way I think. And the indoctrination starts at birth and works its way through. So it's really hard to tease apart all these different strands. I do it issue by issue and piece by piece. And a lot of times I'm working on a really granular level of how we speak to ourselves, like in your own psyche, because the control level is is in the individual's mind, as well as in the wider voting base and demographic. So interesting. And, you know, I, I'm thinking too about, hmm, I'll just say a female Supreme Court justice. <laughs> <laughs> I use that term lightly. I use that term real lightly. Right? The justice part? Uh, yes. In my former cult member support group, there was a woman who was in the same group as this newer Supreme Court justice and who said she can hear the terminology. She can hear the language. She also hears the tone that there's a certain countenance. There's a certain way of carrying herself. There's a certain way of speaking, certain kind of Mona Lisa benign smile on her face, like everything's fine or I'm feeling superior or whatever the look is coming from, she just gets chills and she can recognize it. And she can recognize the just the language. Like when she was interviewed for her post, this woman was so triggered um, and she wanted to just yell out to the public, don't you hear what I hear? I'm hearing cult speak uh, and you're not. And, you know, to what degree is that going to impact our government, our world, our justice system, and how much is it going to infuse itself with unwittingly, you know, into the decisions that are made and how other people might start to speak. It was very troubling for her, and I'm sure it's troubling for you as well. It is. I think it's the life or death of America. We have to understand this. We have to. And it's their dog whistles that insiders tremble to hear. And it's really hard to help someone see what that is. I mean, it when it's someone like that is portrayed as representative of a gender, she's highly educated, um, we can trust it. All of the signals that we should be lulled into thinking this is safe are present. That absolutely is a product of high control and deep strategy, deep, deep, deep strategy. This belief system wants dominion first of America and then of the world. They don't hide that and they congregate every Sunday to talk about how they're going to do it. They put large sums of money towards it and they were really careful. I remember being a small child and hearing, we need to get into the court first. The White House may rotate, but if we get into the court first, I was a little child sitting on a pew hearing that, you know, that's what, what's out in the open. Who knows what, what's happening behind closed doors? I've had enough of those behind closed doors to be very afraid for my country. You know, a lot of what people like about hearing people's stories is they get to see what they couldn't see otherwise. And they get to be privy to the kind of sometimes the more important discussions that people have been too afraid to share or have where they've been sworn to secrecy, or at least there's the assumption that people will keep it secret if, you know, if it is behind closed doors. But I'm all about not keeping people's secrets anymore when they don't deserve it, when they're taking advantage, right? So that's that's the time to swing open the doors and say, let's all take a look and let's all give a listen. 
That secrecy benefits the perpetrators. And I'm at total liberty to share my story, at total liberty. The patriarchy, the Christian patriarchy, the, the evangelical church, the groups that we're going to be talking about, they want to run our country the way they run their homes. So the person who has lived in one of those homes and has come through it and come out of it is the one who can share, well, what's that like? What is it like to live in their America? I can tell you, and I would imagine that most women, most people, most Americans are not going to want to live that way. And without knowledge, without them knowing, without somebody being willing to say, okay, this is embarrassing sometimes and difficult and uncomfortable, but I will tell you what it's like. Without somebody doing that, we're in for it. When you think about groups that take advantage where there is abuse, neglect, where there's a lot happening, then you are looking at, a, I think, to a certain degree, a collective group of perpetrators who, uh, some who really know that what they're doing is wrong and some who really don't. And uh, I've worked with enough people who were very surprised to know that the way they were treating people was not okay. Uh, they didn't know any different. And they were so sequestered in their little world that they didn't know any different. But at some point, you say, you know what, if you are part of the world and you have met people on the outside and you do see how other people treat each other, you do start to develop a frame of reference. And I think a lot of people hide behind this idea, I didn't know better and or this is, you know, the best way. I think for some people it's the best way for them. That's how they want to have their marriage. That's what, that's the kind of power they want to exert over people. And so they will say, you know, it's what God wants and everywhere in between, you know, a lot of people I think are really innocently doing it. If they have not been exposed to anything else all the way to, they know what they're doing and they're just saying they don't. And so I know that part of your story is talking about how you were treated and how Women are treated, and men too, to a certain degree. But I would love to start getting into your story. And wherever you want to start it is fine with me. And then we'll just go from there. I always start at the beginning because the beginning is so mainstream and calm and ordinary. Most people will relate to being taken to church on Sunday um, and how absolutely normal that sounds. You might relate to having to memorize scripture um, hearing there's a heaven and a hell, hearing Bible stories that sometimes scare you, being told that you need to remain sexually pure, constant songs that help reinforce what you're being taught, sermons that gain intensity as you grow. Those are religious themes that a lot of America can relate to. And for me, it was the boiling water that I was in that just slowly cranked up the heat, cranked up the heat. I learned really young that their voice was in my thoughts like my all of my thoughts came in their voice both in my pastors my teachers my parents god sounded like all of these people around me to the point where i couldn't hear my own voice after about 8 or 9 so i was raised in a southern baptist mega church that was also a lot of fun very happy very wealthy gave us a really good childhood kept us really busy their whole goal was to keep teenagers out of trouble. And so they would convince parents, you know, give your kids to us and we will give you back a pure leader who will, you know, glorify God and make good choices in their lives. And, you know, what parent, ultimately parents want to love their children and raise successful humans. So, you know, that appeals. So parents were signing their kids over for, you know, we were there six out of seven days a week doing some kind of church activity. It was our life. Also makes detangling harm really difficult because we didn't know any different and a lot of happiness was entangled in 
boundary crossing conversations with pastors and terminology we should have never heard at that age and absolute fear-based theology meant to control us by the fear in our throats. When you're having fun, it's really hard to detangle all of that. The end result of 18 years of that is that I understood it was not to be anything other than a wife and a mother. And conveniently, I wanted that for myself. So I didn't I didn't struggle. I went willingly to this altar. My church really hammered the importance of getting married young and having short engagements so that you don't have sex before you get married. So I did. I married somebody that I only knew uh, for a short period of time. We did. We dated for about two months. We were married within that year. And he, I barely knew him. You barely know somebody in that span of time. Um, but he was an abuser and, and he was abusing me all along, but I was in hook, line, and sinker. And I really believed in my heart and soul that I needed to mold myself around who God sent because he was God's best for my life. This teaching we had been, you know, ingrained in for so long was whoever shows up and says, I'm God's best for you. Well, you should not say no to that. You know, if a man says it, it's even more important to believe him. And so I would find myself trying to feel attracted to him and trying to feel like I wanted to be married to him. He was violent from the get-go, as I shared in Shiny Happy People, um, was raped on my wedding night three times without any sexual training or knowledge of purity, purity culture girls. I'm sure the audience has heard the term purity culture before. You're expected to be numb and silent sexually until this magic light switch turns on your wedding night where you will commence being a freak in the bed for the rest of your life. And it doesn't work that way. The nervous system doesn't work that way. The body doesn't work that way. Um, and I didn't have any language or vocabulary for what I was experiencing. Could not have called it that for another 20 years when I was in therapy and started learning the definitions of what assault or rape, domestic abuse. I didn't know any of those terms at the time. What I did know that I was pregnant quickly just to give you a quick overview of that, I'd had nine pregnancies and I had five surviving children. And one of my babies died in infancy. So it's been a road with motherhood. Ultimately, motherhood is what saved me. So I'm extremely grateful. But we had all forms of abuse in my marriage. I was physically, sexually, verbally, emotionally, spiritually, financially, all of the kind of ways you can be abused. I was. And I thought it was normal life. This was reflected in my church around me. All of my friends had similar stories. We didn't talk openly, you know, a lot about the the deep secrets. So I didn't know, like, does it always hurt? Are you able to use your ch the checkbook? Um, do you have to ask permission before you use the car? I didn't know any of those things. So I had a young baby with an abusive husband and a volatile marriage, and I needed to get him to sleep through the night so that we could be rested. And I did what my church taught me to, which was to turn to the older women. There's a verse in Titus that says, let the older women teach the youngers. So I went and found what I thought was a professional mother. I had been looking at these mothers in my church for probably eight to 10 years, and I didn't know the terms for them. I just knew that they were large families. They didn't use birth control. They dressed like Little House on the Prairie. Some of them were very wealthy and still chose to live that way. Some of them were in deep poverty and tried to maintain this lifestyle, but they were glowing and they seemed like they had a spiritual secret the rest of us needed to learn and they were their children all obeyed and they sat quietly in church in a row and older people would be just look at that baby and look how much that family loves children and they were lauded at the same time they were isolated somewhat in our large congregation because we were pretty mainstream women worked people wore pants i mean women wore pants it was 
becoming more conservative, this was in the 90s, early 90s, was becoming more conservative, but it wasn't there yet. Um, so I went to this group of women in the nursing room and I said, can you please help me learn how to teach my baby how to sleep through the night? And that's when I was introduced to Bill Gothard's Institute of Basic Life Principles because they were an IBLP family. All of them were IBLP families sent into our church. They had, they had attended Bill Gothard's conferences and they were, his model is churched people. So they come back to their church to witness and bring in people who haven't gone to a conference. People like me who are young and weak and need help and need counsel. So Gothard has a lot of magic formulas for a happy life. That's what his basic principles are. And I clung to them for hope. Okay. So let's go back and then come back to this point because I'm curious about the counsel that you got. And also it's an interesting thing when the reaction is, look how much they love children. Not necessarily. And so when you see all these ducklings in a row, you can see it with fundamentalist branches or orthodox branches of most religions, a lot of ducklings in a row. I don't know how happy they necessarily are, but to the untrained eye, it all looks like it's going really well because it looks so on the surface. And having children who are all well-groomed doesn't mean they're happy. Having children who are all dressed neatly <laughs> and also having children who are all obeying at every age always is problematic to me. And, you know, gives me chills when I see the little ones sitting for as long as the older ones, because you just wonder what threat they were put under to do that and what fear they're put under to do that, because it's not developmentally appropriate. Our criteria was never happiness, though. I think that's important. Our criteria was not happiness. I was not happy, and I had no expectation that um, happiness was an indicator of success. Compliance was the indicator of success. Looking right, being able to blend in, being quiet so the father can sleep. That means you're doing it right. This is why I say motherhood saved me, because I was not able to be unloving to my children. I was not able to be that high control. I was not able to inflict that much pain and harm in order to get that desired result. I did want my kids to be happy. I also wanted myself to be happy, but I was probably another decade from being able to say that sentence. I never expected happiness for myself. It had been drilled out long, long time ago. And suffering is so glorified. The more you suffer, the more you think you're closer to Christ. You've entered into his suffering. So it, it changes the perspective entirely because you don't believe that you're good. You believe in original sin. You believe that you're the lowest of the low worms that even Jesus shouldn't love you. And happiness is just not even part of the conversation. So interesting. So, okay. So I'm going back to your marriage and even your wedding night. You know, I'm, I think about a lot of the stories that I've heard and people who have said I was ill-equipped. I, I didn't know what to expect. And the information I was given was completely wrong. And I also had no one to talk to about it. I didn't feel like I could complain or I felt like maybe this is normal. And so why would I talk about it? I think about, I don't know if you've seen the, the musical Spring Awakening, but it is one that I didn't realize was, was written over a hundred years ago. It's pretty topical. One of the storylines is in it. I'm not giving away the ending, so no, no one worry. Is a girl who was not told about the basics about her body or about uh, sex, about reproduction. And then gets pregnant, not knowing that that's what can happen when you have sex. She was never told. And even though she asked, but she wasn't told. 
And then she was basically punished or ostracized from her family because she got pregnant. And she basically, the story is, but I asked you, I asked you, did you chose to not tell me and now you're punishing me. And so even in situations where you can't even ask, it is really on the woman to have to suffer through what is suddenly, I think, as you're saying, just this sense, this is my lot. This is what I'm going to have to endure. And that is just an exhausting thing. And I don't know how you kind of make it through the day, even though you're saying happiness was not necessarily a virtue or a value, but just to be able to make it through the day with all of the chores that were put on your shoulders, I'm sure, almost totally. When you're talking about the abuse too, some people will say that they really didn't know that verbal abuse and emotional abuse, spiritual abuse was abuse because they're looking, you know, as the the law used to do. They just look for bruises, you know, things that are absolutely evident and tangible. If you can talk a little bit about, just because I think people listening will really be able to relate to this as well, the verbal abuse that you encountered uh, and the spiritual abuse, etc. Well, so it was really important to bracket this with the word abuse I did not use until the very end of my story after my escape when my attorney handed me a book called The Battered Woman and said, read this, you need to know this. And I, it was after he heard my story and I said, well, I'm not abused. He's never punched me in the face. In my mind, I thought abuse was only of the fist and he never once hit me in the face. His move was to drag me by the hair down the hallway and slam my head into the doorframe because I have thick hair and that would hide the marks. His move would be to deny me any access to the checkbook, count my mileage and make sure I didn't go a mile over and leave my boundary that he had decided I was allowed to drive the van for the day. It was to deny us adequate money to provide for uh, the groceries that I wanted. Or he's extremely intelligent. And this happens a lot in religious families. He was a theology buff. And this was through the rise of reform doctrine and Christian men everywhere were becoming theobros, and they really studied their Latin and their Greek and their ancient scriptures. So it was always mentally superior. Anything I had to say had to be completely apologized for through apologetics. It had to be defended, uh, verse, chapter, and verse. I had to know my my theologians before we could even have a conversation on whether or not we should do this with our children. For example, should we baptize them? I had to be on par with the theology a seminary degree in order to have that conversation. And of course, I couldn't do that. So then the answer is, well, you will need to submit. And so the submission and dominance model intensified. In the IBLP, it's the umbrella of authority. So a lot of listeners who watch Shiny Happy People will have this fresh on their mind because that visual of the stacked umbrellas is so recent. But it grows as you listen to leader after leader after leader. And my world narrowed, but it also widened into this other theological flavor. I'm not sure what to call it as we became Reformed and started to step out of the Baptist denomination and into Presbyterian and Reformed and where I ended up in the Covenant uh, Presbyterian Church. So the quest for knowledge and the classical homeschooling, classical homeschooling was a massive part of our story and it values intelligence. And that can be used to harm you all of the time. Because if you don't know, if you can't keep up, if you can't somehow get the lawn done and the groceries and all five children and 
keep everybody in a row and do everything and also be able to spend your hour and two with God every day and then defend your positions. It's just exhausting 24 hours a day. Your sleep is not even restful. It's just not never ending. There's not a interaction I can point to that wasn't tainted with abuse. I mean, it was always a mind fuck. I didn't, it's like, you know, I've seen Stranger Things. It's the upside down constantly. You just cannot believe this is your life. And when I paused there, when I hesitated, there's one interaction on my pivotal moment where I realized my, when my daughter died and that there's this moment in my story where uh, I believe I felt true love and connection with him. This is the only time in our marriage is, is in this one singular moment. And it kept me for another seven years. It helped me break my mind free, but it kept me for another seven years in, in physical custody. What caused you to feel love in that way? After she died, I had held her body for eight hours waiting for him to get there. I was out of state and he was traveling and it was overnight. And we were both, I think we were equally in disbelief that this could happen because we come from this miracle-based, God-based world where children don't die. Children never die. God will always save you. And she died. And when he walked in the room, he was lucid, he was clear, and he was connected to me. He was searching me for validation that this really had happened. He didn't believe it, and he came to me. For it was piercing, and I felt like the real him was in there, which if you tell a Christian woman there's a chance that, that you might be able to save this, she's in. She's, you know, death is better than divorce in this, in this environment. So um, if there's a shred of hope that the miracle is coming, you are staying. That's the shred of hope that I clung to for another seven years was, but he's in there. I know he's in there. I saw him and I'll find him again. Oh my goodness. Okay. So much to talk about with that story. And first and foremost, I'm so sorry that you went through that, that you went through the so many losses of pregnancies and then the loss of a child that's horrific, horrific, horrific. The The thing that you're talking about is so interesting because it is a trauma bond, not even so much love. It's, I'm not seeing him be evil uh, for a minute. And so that gives me hope. And this is the person who I want to be with and the person where I can feel a connection. And they're not bad people in this second. Should be fair. We did have seconds like that with the babies, with the young children. Um, if I facilitated and set the stage and all the needs were met, then he could relax and be loving for a little bit. And you are absolutely correct. It was, it was relative to, well, he's a little better than he was, or it doesn't hurt right now, so this must be good. That's not real good, but it feels good because it's not as bad. It's like... Um... Stockholm syndrome, like your captor is giving you something to eat and you think, oh, they really care about you, but they're, you're still hostage. And I think also having him, as you're saying so eloquently, turn to you for confirmation. I mean, this brought him to his knees and here he was looking to you or looking up to you. And that did not happen in your marriage. He couldn't feel superior in that second. And you were the one who held that power in that moment to confirm how interesting. And when you feel it, you also get to experience how you haven't felt it. 
you haven't felt it before and you keep hoping to get it again. It's, it is a high, you know, it's like getting a little taste of a dessert and you just want more. Um, and you keep waiting for the sweetness again. That's right. The closest I had felt to it before was the birth of my children. I had them at home. I had them in the water. I had really visceral, empowering experiences delivering them. And the high, the empowerment high that I felt as this mother warrior who had just birthed this baby was stood out, you know, against the rest of my subjugated existence and couldn't be argued with. They've just seen me do this amazing thing. And, and for a little window, I'm respected for this ability. Incredible. You're a powerful person. Very strong. Thank you. But it's the thing is, this home water birth doesn't hurt as much as hospital birth. And I know that because I had two hospital births too. They were natural. They were they were fast. They were not planned. My daughter, Clara, who I talk about all the time, she was definitely in the hospital because we knew that something was up with her heart. But my first daughter before that was almost born on the bridge because we were transporting from home to the hospital. It hurts more in the hospital. And I don't know how to tell women that, but I wasn't afraid at home. And I was cared for by some amazing midwives. I will say this for the Quiverful communities, they raise up their own midwives. And when you're surrounded by women supporting women, um, it's not something that I forgot. It, it actually was transformative for me. So back to having this marriage and also not having the language. So let's talk about that for a sec, because I think so many people will not know, first of all, how bad it is in particular groups because so much goes unreported or underreported because there isn't the language to define what you're going through. And so if the definition of abuse was able to be taught uh, in so many situations, then I think the numbers of cases would increase tenfold, hundredfold, because they could say, yes, this actually happened to me. Even the language of neglect, you know, malnourishment or whatever people have gone through, it's not the punishment that you deserve. It's not suffering is bringing you closer to God. It's it's not all these other things. It is abuse. And then that means the person doing it to you is an abuser. And it helps to clarify the whole scene when you have the language. But it is also hard for some people to want to look at that and to want to look at what they endured. Completely. There was a confrontation point that took, honestly, years of therapy. And it's still something I deal with a lot when I'm unpacking terms online because I do this so much of naming what spiritual bypassing is and naming what actual terms are for child abuse. When you describe the practice and you hold it up against the definition, oh, it matches this word. Well, this word feels provocative to us and uncomfortable. And so then we have to sit sometimes with complicity and also with just how like the reality, the reality of what happened it's its own step. And I have a lot of grace and compassion around people struggling to sit with, well, what that's not really abuse, is it? And this is my whole life. Like even just using the phrase religious trauma is hard for people because their faith is such a personal part of them and a source they're supposed to turn to for comfort, guidance, promise, wisdom. All of that is supposed to come from their faith tradition. And so defining the harm they're experiencing in their bodies or the dissonance uh, when the body keeps the score of your trauma and you have to start looking at why you're having these physical symptoms and then you, you know trace it back to a high control system, for example, that will happen to a lot of people. And then they'll realize how much that high control systems infiltrated their parental relationships. And then they don't know if they can be, can they go home for Christmas? 
can I go to church on, you know, for the holidays? Everything becomes confrontational and, and frightening. Big chunk of that healing process is just learning to sit with the language and let it be and step forth in reality. Mm, that's so interesting. I had a question also. That's something that you said before, and then I want to move us towards you getting free from this and healing from this. I know that's a big part of the story as well. When you were talking about how if someone is presented to you or if they present themselves as this person who is God's chosen one for you, and that just means it's true, well, it must be true, then... Okay. What does that mean internally if you believe it? And here, this person who is God's chosen one for you is being cruel to you, and you have to endure a life with them in, and being abused in every way. Does it affect how you feel about you? Does it affect how you feel about God or how God sees you that God would send someone to you who would treat you this way? Both. Like I said, we were moving towards reform doctrine, and the Calvinist God is very harsh. The tenets of this are dark. It's tulip. So there's total depravity, unlimited election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the preservation of the saints. You are told that you're a worm, that you're worthless, that um, you're so disgusting that Jesus shouldn't even want you. At the same time, my husband was telling me, you are so disgusting. I shouldn't even want you. And so I feel so disgusting. I shouldn't even want me. Of course, it was just layer upon layer after layer of self-loathing. And I became so depressed that I did have suicidal ideation for years because why would I be here if I'm this gross? I mean, I, I'm not happy. Every day hurts and there's no salvation for me. Like when my daughter died, um, it became particularly cruel because now we have a God a Calvinist God who may condemn and predestine children to hell. Well, if you have that as, the, as your core belief, the world becomes really, really dark. And you don't know, they'll tell you that you don't know if your child is elect or not. There's no way to know that. And then if you're, if you're searching for it, then you can say, well, if the fact that you're searching for it probably indicates curiosity, so you're probably okay. But if you're not, Jesus only died for those he came to save. So if there wasn't enough for you to go around, too bad, you're out. So there's a scarcity model of grace, scarcity model of salvation, and suffering all around you. I really saw no point except my four children. It was the only point that got me through every single day was I couldn't, I couldn't leave them. And they absolutely brightened every day and made it worth living. So I, I did pull through because of them, and I ultimately got away because of them. So there was no way for my faith to not be touched, my view of God to not be touched. And as I've had to unravel all of it, it started with my you know up close and personal relationships, but then it had to widen to my theology, and and ultimately unmoored me. Right. Okay. How old were you, by the way, when you got married? I was nineteen when I got married. And I was thirty-three when I escaped. Young kids who didn't know anything, you know, at a time of life where we didn't talk about mental health or anxiety or bipolar depression or personality disorders, um, addiction, none of that was in our language either. We didn't have that vocabulary available. So if I had been taught to understand what chemistry looks like, what compatibility looks like, I'd have had a different story. If I had been taught what addiction looks like and what signs to watch for, if someone had told me what domestic abuse is and looks like. I still wouldn't have had anybody to go to, but, but I would have had 
something to go on other than, well, this must be my fault. I must need to change myself more, pray harder. Um, it must be that I am disgusting. You know, the internalization may not have happened as deeply and as long. Right. So now moving forward into you as a parent and then extricating yourself and freeing yourself, freeing your children. A lot of people have said to me, while I didn't think about stopping the abuse towards me, there were these pivotal moments as a parent where I thought, I don't want this life for my children, or I'm being told to treat them a certain way or mistreat them a certain way. And I just can't, I can't make it okay in my mind to do that. Or I have done it. It felt so wrong, so bad that I don't want to do it anymore. And I don't want to be in a place that sanctions it or encourages it or abuses me for not abusing my kids. There are a lot of people who will leave on behalf of their children in a way that they just were not equipped to leave on behalf of themselves. When I became a parent, the things I was willing to say on behalf of my children that I wouldn't have dared say for myself, you know, the fights I was willing to have with the teacher who was not nice to my kid, right? But the teacher wasn't nice to me. I sort of just froze, didn't say anything. But for my kid, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I was right in their face, right? And so there, there is something that does grow inside of you, you know, as your child is in your life, whether they come from your body or you adopt or whatever else, you have that protective nature that kicks in. And I'm wondering for you, what started to make the change for you to start to become, you know, unmoored in this really lovely way, sort of not tied and anchored to something that was making you really sink and not float, if we can continue with the anchor analogy. What were the changes that you were noticing that were causing you to think about leaving? It was both a long process and a really fast one. Uh, the, the long process came from not being able to grieve my daughter and being told that I should not grieve and, you know, to God be the glory and to be happy that she was not with me. And I wasn't, I couldn't do that. And because I couldn't do that, because I could not and would not fathom a world where she did not exist, would not pretend like she had not been, an assertiveness started to grow in me. And that assertiveness helped me make decisions when I was home alone with my kids that have completely saved the trajectory of my family. It, it saved their childhoods, it offered them happiness and joy, and it also helped us grow in defiance from the high control. I was, so I was still physically in for another seven years, but in that seven years, I'm not spanking, I'm not using Michael Pearl, I'm not uh, drilling them on their catechism, on their knees, the way they had been taught otherwise. I'm using McGuffey readers because they're boring and small and tedious. Instead, I'm buying real curriculum. I'm reading the great books to them and taking them to libraries and field trips. And so I'm injecting happiness in ways that were rebellious and very problematic and ultimately would get me in a lot of trouble. But for my kids, it was good. Uh, the time we were in Tennessee and we were in this very high control cult where we had to sign a covenant of belonging and I was later excommunicated. Those assertive things looked like I was writing in my own name and I was not to do that. And I, it was a well-trafficked website at 60,000 hits a day. And it was a lifestyle blog back when blogging was brand new and I was really good at it. And they couldn't just make that go away because I had a public persona at that point, it, it, but I could get in trouble for it. So the conflict started to become much more uh, point for point. My secrets were not just in my home anymore. My, it was very clear to the eldership that my husband did not have me underhand. 
and he was supposed to have me underhand. Um, he wasn't capable of it. He didn't have the capacity to be a patriarch. Like, that's one of the conversations no one talks about is that men suffer too. And when they're already having a hard time being them and just taking care of their day-to-day needs, controlling a wife and a gaggle of the kids is really hard. And so he wasn't able to do it. He would not have been able to pull this lifestyle off without my complicity and my my perpetuation. And I started to realize that. I started to realize that if I don't, can't always make me. And they can't always make me. Um, which you might guess in an, an abusive situation, when you ha- start having a woman who has a will, it becomes very dangerous. And that's what happened. We were excommunicated from my writing and, and we were rejected from the heat actually willingly excommunicated us because he didn't want to obey patriarchs either. And he didn't like being under their thumb, which is a, an, a fun irony of, um, of how privilege and power work is, is men, men love to be on top in their fiefdom at home, but they don't, they don't so much like to be under that thumb themselves. So there's all this division in these churches because the men are like, you can't tell me what to do. I'm going over here. Very true. Yes. So we left the system of high control. He had his own unmooring and he could not cope. He needed external structures in order to be lived day, day to day, like just to get through the day, to know what he needed to do. He needed high control religion. And when we didn't have it anymore, he lost all grip on sanity. And so we had about, I'll talk about this in the documentary a little bit. We had about eight months of hell on earth, um, which I got to see up close and personal that we don't need a fictitious hell of to, in our mythology, we can very much create heaven and hell here on earth. Uh, and then it all came to a head on Halloween 2007 when he fully snapped and he held me hostage for four hours and he threatened to bludgeon me to death. And then randomly at midnight, he said he was leaving for a split. Like he'd never done that before. 15 years of marriage, he'd never left a fight. He'd never left a conflict of any kind. And I just heard this voice scream in my head, run. And so I got my kids out of their beds and I grabbed the clothes that I'd folded that day, the laundry off the table and my computer. And we drove out and we passed him on the way back. He had gone to his office to get his gun. We would be dead if I'd not left. Okay. So when you were talking, you were saying eight months of hell leading up to that. That is this really pivotal time where life was even more horrible leading up to this this watershed moment. I'm so glad you heard this voice that told you to run, especially knowing that he was going to get his gun. My goodness. That gives me chills thinking about that. And so you just ran, collected the kids. What did they think was happening? How old were they at the time? They were kids. They were 10 and down, 10 to 3. They were sleeping. They didn't know. Um, mommy was getting them out of bed in midnight in their pajamas and putting them in the car. I was heading to a priest's house. Um, we were um, catechumens by then in the Eastern Orthodox Church. And so there was a priest who I had told that day that I thought my life was in danger. Um, and he was like, I will help you leave. And I, we didn't think it would be that fast. We thought we had a couple days. Uh, but I went to his house and he helped us get out of state the next day. Spent about 10 months in hiding after that. I mean, things got a lot worse before they got better. We had a long, a long slog after that, but we were alive and we were safe. And I was finally able to call things what they were. So that changed, that changes what hard is. When you can call something what it is, it changes how you carry it and how you approach it and fight it and deal with it. Um, and so I found a lot of freedom in language in that first year. 
I think about something that you said before, which is that death is better than divorce. As you were talking about him holding you hostage and then going to get a gun, you know, whenever I think about people uh, doing, you know, these um, relational kinds of suicides where they will kill their spouse and kill themselves, I think, why didn't they just leave? Why do they have to take this out on this person or take it out on themselves? Just separate, just go somewhere else. But if that was not on the table, then the only choice was, or at least it seemed to him. Definitely not on the table, and it is also things um, weak. And and I've never talked about it that way before. But I'm remembering that room right now, and I'm I remember thinking he doesn't have the strength to leave and do and call this. He's going to take the easy way out and kill us. And I was familiar with some of these cases. You know, I used to follow People magazine, um, and uh, Winkler had shot her husband in Tennessee that year, and I'd been following that case. I went to school with somebody named Christopher Wood, who killed his entire family in my town, like a uh, woman and five children. Uh, it's just the easier way out. Horrible as it is, as horrible as it is to imagine killing your wife and family and then turning the gun on yourself, which I don't think he would have done. I don't think he has the... There's there's also... It's, that's a delicate thing to say, but there's a certain courage it takes to have that kind of agency over your own life in suicide. And I don't believe he had that either. I think he just would have killed us. It makes sense then within that world, if he was really feeling disempowered, just not capable of controlling, then yeah, he was going to do the thing. I think guess ultimately that made him feel like he had some control. Okay. My my waiting area in my office has been an interesting place where people have suddenly just appeared and they just got out of some old station wagon, leaving their compound, and the kids are dressed in whatever could be found at the time on their way out as they were running because the gate was left open. So I've seen people in that shell-shocked way of now saying, now what? I mean, I now I did the most important thing, which is I got my family to safety, and now what? So... How did you handle the, and now what part? We got in the car and we drove 16 hours home to Florida and I went home to my parents. My parents are not high control. Um, it's probably a big saving point in my story is that the first 10 years of my life was with good, hardworking Midwestern people who um, aren't like that. They just, they just took their kid to church. You know, That's, my parents are, yeah, they're evangelicals and they mean something different in 23 than it used to mean, you know, years ago. When I was a child, they just took us to church and they just wanted us to have a happy childhood. And they didn't know about the abuse. Nobody in my family knew. I was the best PR manager for my family. I was shiny and happy and my children sat in a row and I had become a model mother. People would look at and say, doesn't she love children? And nobody knew what I was living. I had a lot of music to face when I got home because they didn't know why I was there. They had no idea that he was doing this, and nobody in our lives knew that either. So every conversation became of a, a confession. A lot of times people had their guesses, you know, like there's cracks that show people have their suspicions, but they're trying to be mindful of your business and they don't want to intrude. And and now I encourage people all the time, intrude, <laughs> say something. <laughs> if you have a hunch, follow it. You're probably right. <laughs> right. Yeah, I in fact I said something like that in one of my previous 
podcast episodes at the end, it just suddenly started pouring out of me because I I had this uh, sense that something was happening in a household down the street for me. And I never saw people going in and out. And then when I did, I saw there was a woman who looked very haggard and berated, like she had her head down and looked sad, but all the time. And I knew she didn't live alone. And I just wondered, what is her life like? And how come no one's checking? And I remember talking to some of my neighbors about just going over and saying, like, just talking to her. Oh, you have a beautiful garden. Just seeing if she has bruises, just checking, just feeling connected to someone else in the world, letting them know they're not alone, letting them know they're seen. Or if a a, a building goes up and you see lots of people going in and they don't come out, or there's a barbed wire fence being built around it, maybe it's a compound and maybe you need to check. And there are a lot of times that people are expecting others to be inquisitive and they're needing people to be inquisitive and people are are afraid i think at times they want to mind their own business but it sounds like with your parents you were able to have a soft place to land which is important and you were able to reveal what your life was like and so then i know we're kind of at the tail end of our time together and so i want to move into how you healed and what your kids also needed during that time to find their place in the, in a world that was different. They had to learn everything. And I want to say about, to your point of following hunches that we brought, we, we said at the very beginning of this episode was when you see a row of children and they are all obeying at every age, that can be just as a warning sign as a bruise. There's something off. Something is wrong. It can look too ideal and be a warning sign. Uh, my children had to learn everything. They had to go to public school and learn how to raise their hand to go to the bathroom. They had to be really flexible on this giant field trip I took them on while we were in hiding. Us, their father, they never, he never had custody, he never had visitation. And, and the process of getting there was violent and dramatic and years long. So there was no more facade. Our family was never again allowed to have a facade. We had to deal with what was real in order to be safe. We had to call things what they were. We had to hold really hard truths about a sick parent. It's very hard to even tell your children that their parent, who they thought was this strong patriarch who loved them so much, is ill. Um, it's anger. You know, they don't want to hear. They don't want to hear that somebody that they looked up to uh, is ill. But they also know what we lived through. They know they know some of those behaviors and, and things that um, they had not fully experienced because I left before they hit puberty are things that they were spared. Uh, my son did not become a patriarch. They are not fundamentalists. My daughter is not quiverful. I've been allowed to follow their own paths. All of that came through the next 10 years. I got very sick. That's how it happened for me. All of that trauma stored in my body came out in physical symptoms, uh, tried to diagnose me with MS because I was blind and paralyzed at one point. Um, migraines that wouldn't stop. I mean, it's a, it's its own saga, but it what it did was it sent me to therapy to deal with the medical journey, and the therapist was able to diagnose the trauma. And so then I was able to heal the trauma, and the med medical symptoms resolved. They're all gone. I'm fine. I don't have MS. Um, things don't happen anymore because I know how to handle the trauma that's stored in my body. I do a lot of somatic awareness and IFS parts work, internal family systems. Uh, I'm always trying new the, the new modalities. I did EMDR. I did something called brain spotting, um, which just helps you overwrite your memories um, so that you can't, you can't undo the trauma, but you can undo the way your brain thinks about it. Uh, and I 
am a warrior now for reclamation. One of the things I say a lot is um, there is more ahead than all it's been. And I won't never get my, my youth back. My youth is gone. I'll never get those years back. But they don't get my present and they don't get my future. And I will use everything they taught me against them. I will tell these stories. I will open the doors. I will turn on the lights. I will reach out to survivors. I will not be silent. I will do everything against until I've made my mark, which I hope I'm going to make in as big a way as possible. Yes. And I think you've already started. And so, you know, I think also about you living your life and reclaiming and the model that that is for your children to overcome things, to know there's another side, you know, you can get to the other side. To know also through you accessing therapy and the the different fields uh, of helping professions, you get to educate them about the fact that there are resources out there, which you don't learn when you're involved in a lot of groups. There is no one to go to and, you know, and, and if you're having symptoms, it's because of God or the devil or whatever, like you're not going to have been able to be assessed and treated. And what's also true so often is that people then have symptoms because of what they're being put through. And then they're blamed for having those symptoms, but it's situational. It's being created in them because they're being abused or because they're just spend every day in pain or scared. And so people are put at such a great disadvantage. I think about the people also who are berated for not being able to memorize things and and do everything just perfectly because they have so much adrenaline coursing through their system because of fear that you can't remember and you can't do well on a test. You can't remember your chore list. You just, you're so consumed with just being in fear that that's the sort of all the juice is going there just for, you know, physical uh, survival. And then you're blamed for being stupid or lazy or whatever else. I just think like you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. And I wonder now with the, with the conversations you have with your kids, they're probably pretty purposeful about making decisions and being strong. And so what are some of the, the messages you're making sure to instill in them. All grown now. So they know their own path. They know their own minds. I know that I'm always there for them. Um, they know that you can turn your story. You can flip your story. They are all highly resilient, resourceful people who need to know how to go learn. They know how to go figure it out. If they don't know something, they can, they can. My policy with them is that they can always come to me for the rest of their lives and unpack what they experienced. Uh, always, my door is always open. I will always hear them. See me model. Um, I, I resist a life of urgency. So you can't make mom hurry. You can't make me do things that I'm not on board with. Uh, so there's a lot of modeling happening, like just uh, agency and autonomy and boundaries. And um, we're all really close. We're It's close family. And uh, like when I look at my kids, I feel like I won. Like we won, we're, we're on top. And, and at the end of the day, what matters most to me is that my descendants have taken the next step forward, that I did that much. I usually don't talk about my kids so that I can talk about them in that vague way. And yeah, I, I give the same advice to survivors that are in my DMs all of the time. Um, 
solidarity. Sometimes you just need to know solidarity that somebody else is there too, that they did it too, that healing is possible because it's so discouraging when you're first starting out to feel like you'll never heal, that there are indelible wounds that will never scar over and that you are ruined for life and that it will be your story and you'll be a victim. And I do not call myself a victim. I call myself a survivor who told her story and tells her story and sold her story and is on top. That is That all takes a lot of fortitude. And it's an important distinction to to, to hold on to. I could go back in time. I wish I knew. I wish I knew that children had rights, that they're they're not just pins and pawns of the patriarchy, that they have rights and that neurodiversity and um, exists and we're all fearfully and wonderfully made means everybody uh, of wins. You know, I always wish I could go back in time and whisper in my ear that it's going to be okay. You come out on top. You're going to get through this. Beautifully said. I know as a becoming more of a public persona, you know, there are some beautiful moments. There are some harder moments with the the way that you're going to be responded to when people who feel they need to tell you their opinion about what you're doing. Uh, but by and large, it feels to me, it sounds to me like it's been overwhelmingly positive. I am surrounded with love. I am surrounded by uh, really are rooting for me. and. They're more interested in having a place to say me too. And thank you for saying the thing because they feel like they can't or they're, you know, they're just not at a point with their family or their situation where they can say it too, but they can say it to me privately in a message. And then thank you for saying that thing out loud because that's my story too. That's what I get the most of. Oh, that's really powerful. Okay. So I, I wish you well, and I wish your, your kids who you talked about in a general way, which I think is great because you, you preserve their autonomy too, which is a good model, uh, which doesn't happen in cultic groups at all. Uh, no one gets to have their privacy. Uh, so I'm really glad you get to have that now and your kids get to have that now. And thank you. Thank you so much for, for telling your story and for spending time with me today. For having me. This is an honor. One more thing before you go. Oh my goodness. Tia, thank you. Thank you for sharing about your experiences and how difficult it's been and how much you've needed to get past and conquer for yourself and for your children. I'm so sorry that you've been through what you've been through. And I know you're not alone in that. So many other people have experienced what you've experienced. There is something so interesting about hearing how a goal for a group is not happiness. A goal for a group seems to be compliance, seems to be suffering. And as Tia talked about, suffering is glorified. I think that that's something that can help people who are already suffering, where you feel like then it's something that is going to bring you closer to God. It makes you feel a bit holier in your life. And hopefully, you start to feel better about yourself and not just stay in the suffering. But what I'll never understand is how a religious group 
should be able to have the power to decide that you should be suffering, that maybe your life was going to be okay, but we're going to take you into a very dark place because that's where you're going to learn your lessons and that's where you're going to be a good person in God's eyes. I am sure there's a reason that God, if you believe in God, created human beings, if you believe in the creation story, to be able to feel a whole range of emotions, including happiness. So why would suffering be somehow higher on the list of an emotion with value than happiness? I think sometimes when they tell you that you need to suffer, it's because they like the power. And then they also don't have to feel responsible at all to give you a good life. You're not even looking for one, at least not anymore. One of the things that I deal with a lot with people who have been in controlling environments, growing up in controlling environments, growing up in cults, is that when someone in a position of authority tells them something, they believe it and they don't question it. And it's the absolute truth. And so through counseling with me, they sometimes need to learn how to know if a person is telling the truth. And if a person says, I speak for God, how you might be able to question that and wonder. It is really troubling to me that there is a philosophy within this group that says, if someone says, I'm God's chosen one for you, you can't disagree. So anyone, any man, can say that to a woman, and a woman has to agree with it. A woman has to marry that person. And it could be that this man actually believes it, and it could be that this man knows all he has to do is just say it, and then a woman needs to go along with it. And then what a confusing message, as Tia and I talked about, where you have to believe this man who says, I am God's chosen one for you, and then you go into potentially a highly abusive relationship. It's not absolute in every relationship in these churches that it's abusive, but it can be, and there are no safeguards. And so if you feel that this person is God's chosen person for you, and you are getting bruised, and you are being made to feel scared, is that really what God chose for you? And then how are you ever supposed to feel good about yourself that you somehow deserve to have a good life based on all your service and all your sacrifice and all your good deeds and all your prayer? Or even that you deserve, I mean, it might be too much to ask for a good life, but that you deserve just to be safe and that your children deserve to be raised in an environment where they're safe and they see their mom being treated kindly and respectfully, one would hope, especially with children, that that's something they should be able to see in their parents, especially with the edict that this is God's chosen person for mom and for the family. It is an entirely confusing message. 
And I think it sets people up to feel that this is their lot in life, if this is God's choice for their family. And I know it's hard to even imagine that that might be incorrect. In fact, it's punishable to even think that way and to disagree. But I also think about the danger inherent in that, not being able to question it, but also that there are going to be some men who are going to take that role very seriously and want to do good by and want to do right by their wife and by their children. But there are others who might be very dangerous people who know in their own kind of sadistic ways that all they have to say is, God chose me for you, and the woman has to go along with it. And they might have very evil intentions, but no one questions them. That's a perpetrator's paradise, and it's giving way too much power to someone to just hide behind that phrase and put everyone else in danger. I am, again, so happy that Tia was able to break free and that her children have a chance now to be able to enjoy a good, safe life. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore Indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www dot podpage dot com forward slash indoctrination.